you to uh, open your Bibles and uh, let's loop together that portion of scripture that we read earlier on, Ezra chapter 7 from verse 11 to the end of the chapter, a letter, a letter written by King Artaxerxes. So if you were asked the question, what do you think in general terms is our society's attitude to religion, our society's attitude to God, where would you go? What would you say to that? Or what about maybe more specifically, if you were asked, what is our government our leadership's attitude uh, to religion, what would you say? Now, I know that these are kind of grandiose and fairly large questions, but that's really the sort of thing that we're going to hope to tackle tonight. We're going to think about our society, how it approaches or views religion and Uh, More importantly, how our society views God. But before we do that, we really need to briefly uh, consider the details of what's happening in this chapter that we've got in front of us. Ezra chapter 7. What is it all about? Well, you'll remember, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, that we studied the beginning of chapter 7. And that was where we were introduced at long last to Ezra the scribe. Because Ezra wasn't present at all in the first six chapters of the book, but then he appears in chapter 7. And his appearance, it kind of marks a transition. A transition from the first part of Ezra into the second part of the book. And the focus of the second part of the book, from chapter 7 to the end of the book, is on a second wave of people who return from exile in Babylon and they return to Jerusalem under the leadership of this guy, of Ezra the scribe. But what's important for us to note for tonight's purposes is that Ezra doesn't go back to Jerusalem empty-handed, okay? Ezra goes back from exile armed and armed with a letter. And that's what we've got here, okay? Second part of chapter 7, it is a letter to Ezra from King Artaxerxes, the Babylonian leader. Now, who's he? Who is this King Artaxerxes I? Well, he's a fascinating chap. He is one of the kings or the rulers of the Persian Achaemenid dynasty. Look at Andrew, a resident Persian expert, to see if I've pronounced that even remotely correctly. He will let me off. That's good. But this is a dynasty that, that lasted from about 550 BC through to 
around 330 BC. And these guys, they were incredibly influential leaders. And I love Artaxerxes. I think he's great, largely because he had the most unimaginative nickname ever. These Persians didn't have much imagination because Artaxerxes had one arm that was slightly longer than the other. So the Persians, they gave him the nickname King Artaxerxes I, the long-armed, which is not the most imaginative nickname in the world. But tonight, our focus is primarily going to be on this man, this king, the attitude of Artaxerxes. Now, why is that? Why would we bother focusing on him? Well, because this letter that he writes, it shows us a man, it shows us a king who is desperately trying to appease God. Artaxerxes is trying to appease God. He's doing everything he can to gain favor to gain blessing from the Lord God Almighty. And man alive, does Artaxerxes get it all wrong? So this evening, let's look at this. Let's look together at the attitude of King Artaxerxes. Now, I read a few days ago a blog of an aspiring film script writer, a film and TV script writer. And the the woman, the lady who wrote the blog, she writes beautifully and it was a really, really fascinating blog to read. Fascinating to see all the obstacles she faced in trying to break into the film industry. And at one point, this writer, this blogger, she talks about the brainstorming sessions that she was involved in. So what would happen was that she would open up her house and get her friends round and get her colleagues round and they would chat and desperately try and come up with an idea. An idea for a film or a TV programme. And she said that these were so infuriating, these meetings, Because they would come up with great ideas. They would come up with absolute gems, absolute nuggets. But of course, then they would go home, do a little bit of research, and they would find that someone else, somewhere else, has had that idea and already made that film. And she ended the blog There was no spiritual hint throughout the blog, but she ended it by quoting scripture. And she quoted Ecclesiastes 1.9. She says, What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Ecclesiastes 1.9. There is nothing new under the sun. And that is what we've got in our first point this evening. Okay, so our first point is this. It is the environment of appeasement. Okay, we all got that. 
the environment of appeasement. You see, what is incredible about this Persian dynasty that we've got here, what is amazing about it is just how contemporary it seems. The Persian dynasty, it seems so familiar, it seems so current. Because these kings in this dynasty, they were almost postmodern in the way they thought. And they were definitely postmodern in how they viewed religion. Because you see, at the time of Artaxerxes, the Persian Empire, it was largely a pluralistic society. You see that? It was a pluralistic society. Now, do we all know what is meant by pluralism? Pluralism is this belief that there isn't one true religion. Pluralism believes that there are many ways to God. Pluralism believes that religions, that faiths can happily coexist. Pluralism. And that is how these Persian kings thought. They, they encouraged the whole spectrum of religious belief under their control. Because it wasn't just the people of God that they allowed to go back from, eg- from exile. They allowed all peoples, all different religions to go back from exile and to create and build their places of worship. The Persians were pluralists. This was a pluralistic society. Now, what are you thinking? Does that not sound familiar? Does that not seem like a mirror of where we are today in our society? You know, think about it. Think about our government. Think about your group of friends. Think about your work colleagues or your, your colleagues' university. Now, so many of those people will think that when we distill religion, when we uh, boil it down, that ultimately these people will think that all major religions share a common set of values. That, okay, hey, Buddhism Sikhism, Hinduism, Islam, Christianity, okay, they might differ on detail. But these people believe that when you boil it all down, that we share the same core fundamental beliefs. That was the attitude in Babylon. Now, come on. That is the attitude in the United Kingdom, too. But how do we, as Christians, respond to that situation? Because it's one thing for us to recognize it, okay? It's one thing for us to see that we live in a a pluralistic age. But what should that spur us to as Christians? Well, there's a couple of things that we need to grapple with here, okay? A couple of applications. Firstly... Because we live in a pluralistic society, 
you and I, we have to be absolutely clear in our minds about what makes the gospel unique. We have to be clear in our minds about what makes the gospel not just different to the other religions in the world, but what makes it the entire opposite of all the other major religions. We have to be ready. We've got to be prepared to tell other people the good news of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 3.15 Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give you the reason for the hope, the hope, the hope that you have. And with that, friends, we've also got to see just what an opportunity we have living in a pluralistic age. What do I mean by that? An opportunity. Well, do you think of it like that? Do you think of yourself as blessed to live in the UK as a Christian? Even in our current state of government and situation, do you think yourself as being incredibly blessed by God to live in a pluralistic society. Well, if not, consider Ezra for a moment, okay? Consider Ezra in this chapter. Because he lived in a land that tolerated all religions, didn't he? Ezra lived in a pluralistic age. So what did he do? What did that mean for him? Well, it meant freedom. He lived in a land that tolerated all religions, so he was free to go back to Jerusalem. Ezra was free to worship God. Ezra was free to obey Scripture. And friends, you and I, we are in exactly the same privileged position. Because think about it, we could live in a land that is dominated by one religion. We could live in a land that is dominated by Islam. We could live in fear. In fear of speaking about Jesus Christ, even to our family members. But we don't. We live with freedom. So we must be ready and willing to tell other people of the good news of the gospel. And then, folks, the second response to our pluralistic environment, the second application, and that is that we have to live in a way that is unique. We have to live in a way that is unique. Because... Ask yourselves this, friends. Why is it that in the UK people do not recognize Christianity as being different? How is that possible? How is it possible that people don't realize the uniqueness of the gospel? And regrettably, unfortunately, the answer to that is because we don't show them. We do not live in a way 
that demonstrates the sort of radical obedience that the gospel should prompt us to. You know, if we did, if we lived in a way that was unique, if we differentiated ourselves from the, from the world round, round about, then people would see that Christianity is different. People would see the joy of Christianity. People would see the, the hope that we have. But they don't. Christianity is desirable and it is different and we have to live in a way that shows that. Now, the Catholic Church, the Catholic Church has a teaching on indulgences. Have you heard of indulgences? Uh, Really, they are quite an intriguing subject. Because in the Catholic Church, an indulgence is really like an official assurance from the Church that you are getting divine favor okay an indulgence and throughout the middle ages probably later than that as well these indulgences they were subject to gross abuse and uh, what happened was that the, the churches throughout europe they started selling these things they started selling indulgences they started selling divine favor for Money. Of course, if you know your history, if you know your ecclesiastical history, you will know that this is what, or one of the reasons, that led to the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther, he looks around and he sees uh, these poor peasants giving money to the church, thinking that they are getting, in return, divine favor for that money. And that, friends, is what we see here. That's what we see in our second point, which is the method of appeasement. The method of appeasement. And the main question here is how does Artaxerxes try and appease God? How does he do it? What does Artaxerxes do to try and win favor with God. Okay, a couple of things. First thing he tries to do is he tries to buy God. He tries to buy God's favor, believe it or not. Look at verse 15. It says, this is Artaxerxes to Israel. You are to take with you the silver and gold that the king has freely given to the God of Israel. So do you get it, folks? Do you see what he's up to here? Do you see what Artaxerxes is doing? He is providing money. He's providing riches. He's providing silver and gold in order to win the approval of the people of God, but also in order to win the approval of the Lord God Almighty. You might look at that. I might look at it. And we might think that that is the most ludicrous thing in the whole world. But look around you. And look at the world outside. Now, is this not the policy of every single major religion of the world? 
Now, they might not try to be buying God with money. It might be with good works. But the truth is that we live in a world that is trying to buy God's favor. And then the second way that Artaxerxes tries to appease God, he tries to sweet-talk God. He tries to sweet-talk God's favor. What does that mean? Well, check out how smooth Artaxerxes is. And I think the Scots would say that he's got good banter, that he's got good chat. He is a smooth man here because... You see, the policy of the Persian kings at the time, the policy was to try and find out what the religions, the different religions, what those people called their deities. And then the Persian kings would adopt that term in order to try and please the people and in order to try and please their God. And look at the letter here that Artaxerxes writes. Because look at verse 12. What does he call God? Look at verse 21. You see the same thing. Look at verse 23. See the same thing again. It could go on, but I won't. You see, you've got a pagan king. You've got a pluralistic king referring to God as the God of heaven. Do you get it? Do you see it? Artaxerxes is trying to win favor with the people. He is trying to win favor with God by using the correct language, by using the correct words. And does that, that not ring true for religions around the globe too? You know, you've got some religions, some religions throughout the globe today stating that if you go along to their churches, if you go along to the buildings, if you say the right things, if you use, if you repeat the same stock phrases and stock words, that that's you. You know, you're home and dry. If you say the right things, you will get God's favor. But I tell you this for nothing. We can judge that, and rightly so, But at the same time, we also, you and I, can fall into that trap. Because we can come to church and we can sit and say a few nice things to the people in the pew. And we can, I know it doesn't happen very often, but we can say a few nice things to the pastor on the way out of church. And we can even come to a prayer meeting And we can even say a few niceties and a few stock phrases to God. But at the same time, our hearts are cold to Christ. And our hearts are not right with our God. We mustn't kid ourselves. Favor is not one with God with superficial phrases and words. So Artaxerxes, he tries to appease God, but he goes about it oh so wrong. 
Now, friends, round uh, last week, and we were talking about irrational fears. Irrational fears. You know the sorts of things uh, a grown man like myself being scared of spiders or uh, a person being scared of the dark, that sort of stuff. And we were talking about the whole stuff, irrational conditions that exist throughout the world. And uh, we talked about a few of them. There's dextrophobia. Do you know what dextrophobia is? It's the fear of objects on the right-hand side of your body. Very strange. Or you have thalassophobia, which is the fear of sitting down. Or you have my personal favorite, which is phobophobia, which is, yes, a fear of being afraid. So there's irrational fear, okay? But there is, of course, at the same time, rational fear. Legitimate fear, fear that is well-founded, fear that is justifiable. And we see that in our third thing tonight, and that is the incentive for appeasement. The incentive for appeasement, because why? Why does Artaxerxes bother trying to appease God? What is this chapter this whole letter, what is it all about? Why is he doing this? Why is he going all this effort, giving all this money to Ezra? Why? Well, we're told the answer. It is as clear as day in verse 23. So if your Bibles are open, just have a glance at that. Verse 23, I'll read it. Why should there be wrath against the realm of the king and of his sons. So you see it, don't you? Artaxerxes does this because he fears God. He tries to appease the Lord God Almighty because he is scared of his wrath. And friends, we inhabit a world of fear. We live in a world where so many people spend their lives in fear. There are millions. There are hundreds of millions of people across the globe that live under the bondage of religions that, yes, try and educate people about God, but at the same time, they don't offer a true solution to how the wrath of God at sin can be taken away. And I came face to face with this a couple of years ago. I met with a Muslim imam in a mosque in Edinburgh. And the meeting was to talk about heaven and hell. And during the course of the meeting, I spoke to the imam and asked him, did he think that he was going to be going to heaven when he died? And the man stopped and he paused. And I kid you not, tears in his eyes. He said, I have no idea. I have no idea whether I have appeased Allah. This was a man, a pious man, if you like. Very religious. But he lived in fear. He spent his whole 
life in fear. And surely when we see that situation, surely when we recognize that there are people all around the world weighed down because such of a, such a fear, is it not to our shame that we so rarely tell people how that fear can be removed? Is it not to our shame that we so rarely tell people that Jesus Christ can take that fear away? He can replace it with love. And yet we say nothing. Friends, there are millions of people. There is a world out there that live in fear. They live in fear of death. They live in fear of the future. They live in fear of God's wrath at sin. We must tell them of Jesus Christ. We must. So tonight, folks, we've looked at Artaxerxes and we've noted the parallels between his attempts to appease God and the attempts of the world that we inhabit. But I just want to end with a word about the other guy. The other character in this chapter. What about Ezra the scribe? Well, we see, folks, in Ezra, a foreshadow of what makes the gospel different. We see in Ezra a foreshadow of the central figure of the gospel. We see in him a foreshadow of a figure who has, get this, already won the favor of God for his people. Because you see, this is a passage about a man who has got or who is given authority. This is a man who is given authority from whom? Look at verse 12. Authority from the king of kings. This is a man who is given authority to set up a new rule. A rule of justice. A rule with riches. A rule where God will dwell with his people. Ezra is a foreshadow of the Lord Jesus Christ. And friends, we don't have to worry about working for our salvation. We don't have to strive for that. We don't have to fear the wrath of God. Why not? Because Jesus Christ has already done that at the cross. The cross appeases God. The favor is already won. Does it not strike you sometimes that the gospel message is the most incredible and glorious and perfect message that there is? What a message. A message that takes the standards of our pluralistic age and turns them all on their heads. So let's go out with that message. Let us go out with the gospel. And like Ezra, let's embrace this freedom that God, in his kindness, has bestowed on his people. Let's pray.